Let's begin our story by setting the scene. Now, we need a little bit of atmosphere. I'd like our sound designer, Sean, to play some tinkly piano music right about here. Yeah, jazzy, a bit light piano bar style. Yep, perfect. Okay, remember just sitting at your favorite restaurant with a drink? Bartender, I'll have a Gibson martini. That's a gin martini with an onion. Now, let me ask you, have you ever witnessed something become a hit up close? One of the most amazing things I've witnessed in my life is a neighborhood restaurant become a Chicago institution. The kind of place where you go to get full, but also to have a night out to remember. It's the kind of place that Michael Jordan and all the Bulls would head to after workouts and home games. So my name is Steve Lombardo. I am the chairman of the Gibson's Restaurant Group, one of the larger independent restaurant groups in the Chicago area. Steve, or Lombardo as I call him, we've been friends since long before his dad opened Gibson's more than 30 years ago. And in recent years, I've watched him slowly take over his dad's line of restaurants. And I wanted to know how he was doing. So you took your dad's business You've been the chairman for about five years or so. You've been in charge of things. And the calamity of calamities happens. How does, I never asked you, how has that felt? I mean, obviously, like, you've gotten hit by a ton of bricks and kicked in the groin all at once. It is brutal. Lombardo tells me that when the quarantines began, Gibson's was barely doing 15% of regular business. Now, it's times like these when you start thinking the unthinkable. And in Lombardo's case, that meant delivery. It was taking every menu item at every restaurant and putting it in a container and letting it sit there for 30 minutes and then tasting it and saying, okay, is that acceptable or not? The things that did not taste well after 30 minutes of sitting in a container, we said, you know what, that doesn't belong on the menu. For a Chicago Steakhouse or an institution like Gibson's, pivoting to delivery is a huge deal. This is the kind of place that brings the raw cuts of steak to your table so you can pick out which one you want cooked. I mean, what app has that setting? But can a dry-aged prime Chicago-cut steak in a paper bag save the restaurant business? Well, it might have to. I'm Sonarin Glinton, and this is now What's Next, an original podcast from Morgan Stanley. Before the outbreak, nearly half of us went out to eat at least twice a week. Half the money we spent on food went to restaurants. But here's the thing. Restaurants typically operate on razor-thin margins. Now, corner taverns, greasy spoons, neighborhood institutions, even national chains, they're going out of business. By September 2020, over 100,000 eating establishments in America closed forever. Things do not look good for our favorite places. So many are adopting new ways of doing things. And along the way, they're rethinking what it really means to be a restaurant. But will it be enough? This season on Now, What's Next, a podcast from Morgan Stanley, we're trying to figure out what life after a global pandemic looks like or can look like. 
We're exploring how the world continues to evolve in the face of a global crisis and the rare chance it's given us to rethink our assumptions. This may be a once in a lifetime challenge, but it's also an opportunity to learn from this moment and create real and lasting change. In this episode, if we won't go to restaurants for that dining experience, then restaurants are gonna have to come to us. That's now. What's next? When Gibson sales nosedived, the impact went beyond just their bottom line. They were forced to cut their staff by 40%. And when an operation that big, it means a lot of people lost their jobs. People who've worked with us for 30 years, and then some who've only worked with us for a year, but 800 of those people aren't with us anymore. Guys who I knew from when I was a kid, when I bust tables, we had to lay them off. They're part of the family. That, that was the toughest thing. We did everything we could, but at some point, it's survival. They are not alone. The pandemic has been devastating to restaurants, and a lot of people rely on them not only for a meal, but to make a living. There's not just a person that cooks the food. There's a person that serves the food. There's a person that washes the dishes. There's a person that preps the food. Like, there are a lot of hands, and those people are just like the rest of us and deserve to be cared for just like the rest of us. They deserve the opportunity to be safe. They deserve the opportunity to do the job that they love and be able to care for their family. Colleen Vincent is the vice president of community at the James Beard Foundation. If the majority of the restaurants don't survive this moment, it means a transformation and a devastation unlike much of what we've ever seen in our lifetime. Culling can't say exactly how many restaurant workers face unemployment in the U.S. this year, but the foundation is alarmed by the size of this crisis. I think that the closest that we get to understanding that number is, you know, anecdotally, without an intervention, you know, we can lose up to 85% of this industry. So what are your options if you lose your job in the restaurant industry? To be very frank, not very many. In the face of potential ruin, restaurants everywhere are trying any number of things to innovate their way through this crisis, or at the very least, keep the lights on. Delivery and takeout is huge. So is retail, everything from T-shirts to homemade spice rubs. And some places are going much further and here's one example. It starts with burnt bacon. So um, I'm going to just use an induction burner, whether you're using one, uh, any burner in your house. I'm going to kind of get the pan uh, kind of medium, medium heat. And we've already got our bacon cooked off. While you're doing that, I've gathered the ingredients in my kitchen as well. So um, I burned my bacon, but I still have the bacon fat. Five minutes into my online cooking class with Sean Garcia, and I've already burned. Well, if you still got and eaten the bacon. <laughs> if you still got the bacon fat, use that. It's going to give you those flavors in there, uh, like you had the bacon in there. Sean is the executive chef at Sobeys, where they cook up New South cuisine. It's a classy place. It's been around more than 20 years. You'll find it in Greenville, South Carolina. And today, from 2,300 miles away from my kitchen in West Hollywood, he's teaching me 
how to make shrimp and grits. So what essentially we're gonna make first is we're gonna make a bacon tomato gravy. Like so many restaurants, Sobeys also needed to find a way to make ends meet that didn't involve packing their dining rooms with customers. That's where the virtual shrimp and grits lesson comes in. The idea is very simple. Swing by the restaurant, pick up the ingredients, what they call a virtual cooking box. And that night, you take part in a Zoom cooking class with the head chef himself. Or if you're like me and you live thousands of miles from Greenville, you can make do with what you can get at your local grocery store. Now, help me understand why you decided to make this offer. Well, one is to make that connection, to be able to give our customers something that they couldn't have when we were closed, but also to still support the staff that was still coming in every day. Sean knows he's in the business of creating and fostering links between you, the meal, the person who served it, and the person who cooked it. With the Zoom cooking classes, you get a shortcut, and that interactivity makes it even more intimate than it was before the pandemic. So it was something that we wanted to be still viable, still being in the community, still be there for our community. And people are, well, eating this up. Some nights they have more than 3,500 people following along on a Zoom call, cooking their grits, and hopefully not burning their bacon. No matter what's going on around you and how things in, in life seems hectic, when you bite in that shrimp and grits, or that fish and grits, for a small time period there, everything kind of stops and you're consumed with that emotions of enjoying that food and the people that you love and the people in your family. During a time when many restaurants are navigating openings and closings and reopenings and reclosings, Sean hangs on to these cooking classes. So like me, you don't even need to live in Greenville to enjoy his Southern cuisine, even if what you're cooking doesn't quite match what's served in his restaurant. Sean Garcia and Steve Lombardo, they're engineering creative ways to extend their restaurant's story into our homes. But what happens when you're a chef who doesn't have a restaurant, but still hopes to create that connection and share another story through food? It's simple. You fake it so you can make it. Before the pandemic, a restaurant trend emerged called ghost kitchens. Essentially, these are restaurants that aren't restaurants. They exist exclusively in food delivery apps. There's a kitchen, sure, somewhere, but that's it. In 2015, one study found that 10% of all restaurants listed on food delivery apps in New York, apps like Grubhub or Seamless, they were ghost kitchens. And that number has only grown. In mid-2020, a mysterious Pasquale's Pizza and Wings was showing up in cities where nobody had ever heard of a pizzeria by that name. Pasquale's Pies, it turns out, were made in the kitchens of dormant Chuck E. Cheese's, closed during the pandemic. It was, in fact, Chuck E. Cheese by any other name. Ghost Kitchens definitely got a bad rap, and some of it's deserved because, from what I understand, some of the delivery companies are taking their data setting up their own kitchens based on that data so they can target, uh, you know, hamburgers sell the best in this area of Westchester, New York. This is Edward Hardy. He's a chef from Northern Virginia. He's talking about how delivery services are eating their way into the restaurant business. They're launching their own ghost kitchens and competing directly with actual restaurants. And some people don't like that. 
So they set up a hamburger restaurant and they name it Bill's Hamburger Restaurant. They're able to beat them on price. They have preferred delivery on their own website. And once you really go down that rabbit hole, you can imagine the advantages that a ghost kitchen restaurant set up by the delivery company would have. And so from the, if you can't beat them, join them school of entrepreneurship, Ed decided to not let the virtual restaurants get the jump on him. He went out and started a ghost kitchen of his own. Before the pandemic, Ed was among the millions of hardworking people hustling their way in the food industry. One of the millions Colleen Vincent at the James Beard Foundation thinks a lot about. Ed cooked in a nightclub restaurant and he was a teacher at a culinary school. The virus cost him both those jobs as both businesses closed up shop. Suddenly, without work, Ed found himself kind of at a loss. And my day would consist of getting up, making myself a gourmet omelet for breakfast and playing video games and then eventually going to bed about 16 hours later. He drifted around like that for a few weeks and his friend Nate, a former partner at the nightclub, was also without a job. And he invited me over for a socially distanced barbecue and he was looking for some comfort food. And he said, hey, Chef Ed, make some pierogies. It's not like Ed was a pierogi pro, but he took it on as a challenge, one that didn't involve the video game console. I made some beet pierogies. I made a blueberry lemon thyme pierogi. Ed's pierogies were so good, he and Nate realized that there might just be demand for their starchy, nourishing comfort food. What with everyone mostly stuck at home. Because, you know, we're internet savvy, the ghost kitchen phenomenon presented itself. We said, what's the best place to set up a ghost kitchen? Well, what was being unused in my life, it was the recreational culinary school, which had plenty of equipment. And so that's what they did. They set up in the dormant culinary school. They called their pierogi place Zofia's Kitchen. It's named after, who else, but Ed's completely fictional Polish grandmother. This is how you tell a story about food, right? They built the menu of pierogies that only a make-believe bubby could cook. Loaded baked potato pierogies, spinach and feta pierogies, pastrami pierogies. There's even something called the Fat Elvis, a dessert pierogi with bacon, banana, and Nutella. Whew, saints preserve us. The idea took off immediately, really. They hadn't even cooked anything yet, but they were a hit the moment they first tested their online ordering system. We didn't realize we actually turned it on, like it was live for real. And within about 10, 20 minutes, somebody placed an order, <laughs> which shocked us and surprised us, but also was really encouraging. I mean, somebody noticed this thing that had been out in the ether for, for 10 minutes, said, I would love to have some pierogies. Uh, <laughs> we, we managed to be able to call him back and, and refund his money, but he, he, was, he was shoving his money at us. The new business model, the virtual restaurant, lets Ed connect with a hungry customer base. Ed has learned not to be afraid of ghosts. Nate and I should have had a lot of fear in my opening during the pandemic when restaurants are closing, but just a little belief and, and just a little creativity and just a little smart look at the market around you is, is allowing us to succeed. Bringing you comfort food in a time of anxiety, isn't that what the best chefs and grandmas do all the time? The COVID crisis confirms what restaurants and chefs know about success. It's not only what's on your plate that matters, it's connecting that meal to the place that makes it. Even better, connecting with the person who cooks it. In normal times, this is what helps get people out of the house and off the delivery apps. But in a pandemic year, sometimes you just have to bring the chef quite literally to them. 
And there's nowhere that that's more clear than a crazy experiment that took place in Florida. In March 2020, an NBA player tested positive for COVID, not long after the entire basketball season was suspended, at least until early June. That's when the league made a surprising announcement. They would finish out the season, but all players and support staff would live together in Florida with no contact with the outside world. They called it the NBA bubble. In other words, the biggest shelter-in-place order was about to play out in basketball. It was great news for fans, but not for Chef Lex. I was very upset. <laughs> I was like, damn, how am I going to get a piece of this? You're literally taking all my clients, all my money. Not only am I about to suffer for this, all the chefs that I've been keeping employed during this time is about to suffer for this. That is Chef Alexia Grant. She got her start working in restaurant kitchens, but eventually she grew a business providing private chefs to wealthy customers, customers like NBA athletes. But if all those athletes were going to be walled up in that bubble, that would be a problem for her and her business. Lucky for her and maybe unlucky for the NBA players, the food in the bubble, well, let's just say it became an issue. Montrez Harrell posted a picture of a nasty-looking chicken dish to his Instagram with the caption, yeah, I'm about to starve here in the bubble. Joel Embiid posted that he was, quote, definitely losing 50 pounds. This was Chef Lex's chance. She sent a detailed proposal to the NBA. And when they found out how many clients I had and what my plan was, they offered me a space in their um, executive chef kitchen to run my business. And I was floored. I was like, what? <laughs> really? I get to go in the bubble? <laughs> I was just so excited. I jumped right at the opportunity. Like it was a no brainer for me at that point. Who better to get the call really? Chef Lex had been helping to feed athletes for years and she knew what they like and how they need to eat. I made for the NBA bubble a comfort food menu of soul food and Caribbean infusion. Um, my genre that all my clients call for is healthy comfort food in totality. So I am half Indian and half Jamaican, Caribbean. I wanted to create a menu and just let everybody who was able to try my food feel like home because no one was able to have that. Chef Lex found success, huge success in the bubble. She's a mini celebrity now, featured on NBC, Sports Illustrated, and NPR. Now business is booming. The folks with money were desperate for a private chef to help them weather the pandemic. So my phone started blowing up and I didn't have enough people at the time. And it was also, I mean, COVID. They need a chef, but everybody wanted their own chef. And before the pandemic, she was at the whim of fickle customers, some of whom would make ridiculous demands. Not the NBA players, but other wealthy clients who weren't afraid to air their prejudices. I don't want minorities. I don't want a woman. I don't want someone who looks like this. A lot of these issues would come up in the interview process of accepting a new client. I'm walking into a situation thinking that it's going to be about food and allergies, and it's more about someone's gender and someone's nationality. I mean, it sucks. 
But as demand for in-home chefs outstripped supply, a lot of that prejudice disappeared. This in a crisis where Black-owned businesses, be it food-based or otherwise, close at twice the rate of their white counterparts. From Chef Lex's view, there were opportunities to be found. The level of success that I reached feels surreal. It's the thing that I've been praying for for so long, so long, screaming it out to the universe that I want it, and it's happening. Both Chef Lex and Ed Hardy have found ways to navigate this downturn, and both are surprised by their sudden good fortune. There are many other examples like this out there. There are also countless stories of tragedy. That's why Colleen Vincent and her team at the James Beard Foundation have refocused their mission this year to support survival and rebuild efforts across the industry. They're raising and distributing funds to those in need, and they've joined efforts to pressure governments to support the industry. And they're thinking about how restaurants can come back better. The first thing that people have been thinking about is how to have a restaurant that revenue is not an up and down thing. Certainly like an industry-wide consult on the true cost of operating a restaurant, on the true cost of labor and how to support not only the owner, but the staff. But it's not just about the money. It's about people as well. Wanting to have a restaurant, wanting to be employed by a restaurant is as much of an American dream as any other, is as valid of an American dream as any other. Restaurants offer more than just a place to grab a meal. There's a story to every single place we love. And it's been hard to be a part of that story lately, but it doesn't go away. My buddy Lombardo at Gibson's in Chicago, he knows this all too well. Why do people go to restaurants? We're social animals. We eat together whether it's a birthday or an anniversary or just hanging out with a bunch of friends and they can say, hey, I went to your place. They have memories that they've created that we helped them create. And there's something beautiful about that. So Gibson's does delivery, but ensures the food you bring home reminds you why you love them. Your favorite chef teaches you to cook for yourself until he can cook for you again. And another gives you a taste of home when you're trapped in the basketball bubble. And Grandma Zofia shows up from nowhere to fill your belly and keep you cozy during a quarantine. That was a need that proved so pronounced, actually, that Ed Hardy's ghost kitchen is becoming something real. Ed is opening a lunch counter where you can eat hot meals and get pierogies to go. A good restaurant tells a great story. Colleen Vincent agrees. Yeah. The secret ingredient is the restaurant story. And so the way it's being told has changed, but the story is still there. The restaurants with the best chances of surviving are the ones that recognize the value of building and fostering connection, of helping create memories that keep people anchored to physical places. That alone is why restaurants need to be saved. When this crisis is over, your favorite restaurant, if it's still around, will be jammed packed. I can't wait to have a real martini with a friend telling a bar story, being together, communing. I know you can't wait either. The virus might go away, but that need, that desire to connect, 
never. I'm Sonarian Glinton, and this is Now What's Next, an original podcast from Morgan Stanley. Cheers. Cheers.